Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling Podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, explorers. I'm Pam Larickia, and this is episode number 304 of the podcast. It's the 15th of November, 2021, as I record this intro. This week, I'm continuing my mini-series, In Celebration of Unschooling, sharing the draft of an as-yet unpublished book I wrote a few years ago. The book looks at unschooling through the lens of parenting, and this week we're diving into Chapter 7, Family Relationships. I was reading through and lately editing the chapter yesterday before recording this, and it was fun to see that this chapter is about the same ideas as the theme in the network this month, A Family of Individuals. (laughs) How cool that things weave together like that. These ideas around family relationships can seem unconventional, how focusing on supporting and connecting with each family member individually actually cultivates stronger family relationships. I shared this quote earlier this month in the network, but I wanted to share it here too. I came across it a couple of weeks ago listening to Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Here she's talking about the three sisters planting corn, beans, and squash together. She writes, There are layers upon layers of reciprocity in this garden between the bean and the bacterium, the bean and the corn, the corn and the squash, and ultimately with the people. It's tempting to imagine that these three are deliberate in working together, and perhaps they are. But the beauty of the partnership is that each plant does what it does in order to increase its own growth. But as it happens, when the individuals flourish, so does the whole. The way of the three sisters reminds me of one of the basic teachings of our people. The most important thing each of us can know is our unique gift and how to use it in the world. Individuality is cherished and nurtured because, in order for the whole to flourish, each of us has to be strong in who we are and carry our gifts with conviction so they can be shared with others. Being among the sisters provides a visible manifestation of what a community can become when its members understand and share their gifts. I love that so much. Individuality is cherished and nurtured for the whole, the family, to flourish. And that's been my experience too through the lens of unschooling. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon. I deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support pays for the hosting and transcription and contributes to the time I spent creating new episodes each week. It's instrumental in keeping the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash exploring unschooling. And now let's dive back into the book. Chapter 7, Family Relationships. We've talked about why connected and trusting relationships with our children are important for unschooling to thrive. Now let's dive into ways we can build them. 
Can you imagine genuinely enjoying spending time with your children? Or does that seem like another alien characteristic? I'll grant you, relationships in unschooling families often look very different than conventional parent-child relationships. I expect you already know the conventional drill. Parents in charge, encouraging family harmony by telling their children to get along because you're family. The message that sends children is that the construct of family is more important than the individuals it contains. Yet, judging by the number of books, movies, and TV shows steeped in family discord and sibling rivalry, this hasn't been a particularly successful parenting strategy. Through unschooling, I glimpsed why that might be the case. I discovered that acknowledging and respecting the individuality of each family member actually helped us get along better with one another. At first, the idea of dropping my get-along-with-each-other expectation didn't seem to make any sense. Wouldn't I potentially, potentially be opening up a hornet's nest of conflict? Everyone seemed to want a million different things that were at odds with everyone else. Yet, to my surprise, once we all sincerely trusted that our needs would be respectfully considered and addressed, it was like a soothing balm for our souls. And in that process, I discovered three conventional parenting assumptions that were at odds with developing a deeper level of trust and connection with my children, and with my children developing comfortable relationships amongst themselves. One was that power struggles between parents and children are inevitable. The second was that being fair means being equal. And the third was that strengthening a parent-child relationship means bringing the child closer to the parent. Beyond Power Struggles The plethora of parenting articles about how to negotiate power struggles with children underscore the pervasiveness of the assumption that power struggles with our children are unavoidable, like death and taxes. I thought that too before we began unschooling. The prevailing parenting advice was to stay firm and establish ourselves as the final authority, using phrases like, because I said so, or my house, my rules, to manage our children's behavior when conflicts arose. More recently, I've seen a movement to natural consequences, ostensibly giving some control over the situation to the children in the name of teaching them responsibility by setting them up for embarrassing consequences, like taking them to school in their pajamas if they aren't dressed before it's time to leave. It may sound gentler, but really it's just using shame rather than punishment to try to modify their behavior. Conventional family life is practically defined by the enduring power struggle of parents versus children. Is another way even possible? Absolutely. In her book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Tells Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children, Alison Gopnik shares insightful analogies for these differing parenting approaches. Carpenter parents are working with a goal of producing a particular kind of adult. They are approaching parenting as a job, essentially following the conventional blueprint in an attempt to shape their child into a successful final product. On this journey, control is an essential tool. Shame, guilt, and punishment are used liberally to nudge children back in line with the plan. On the other hand, 
Gardener parents aim to create a protected and nurturing space for plants to flourish. Gopnik explains that a good garden is constantly changing as it adapts to the changing circumstances, and a good gardener, quote, works to create fertile soil that can sustain a whole ecosystem of different plants with different strengths and beauties, and with different weaknesses and difficulties too, end quote. In this way, quote, being a good parent won't transform children into smart or happy or successful adults, but it can help create a new generation that is robust and adaptable and resilient, better able to deal with the inevitable, unpredictable changes that face them in the future, unquote. Unschooling won't thrive if we are trying to mold and control our children to create a final product. In other words, if we see parenting as a job. Rather, we choose to focus on the relationship, on connecting with our kids, on living alongside each other. With this approach, we see how they are growing and changing and we can adapt to better support them along the way. For parents who've so far relied on control-based tools to manage their children's lives, the only conceivable alternative is chaos. Yet, as unschooling parents move from control to connection, they discover that so much of the conventional behavior we see in children is not innate. It is in reaction to being controlled. Their actions are not what they would freely choose for themselves if given the opportunity. Moving away from the paradigm of adults versus children allows both unschooling and relationships to flourish by giving children choices. Instead of trying to directly control their children's lives, unschooling parents focus on supporting their children as they explore the world. We've already talked about this idea, how solid learning happens when the child is interested and engaged, but now we're going to apply it to relationships. Instead of thinking of our relationships with our children in terms of us versus them, let's drop the confrontational nature of having sides altogether. We'll keep the notion of power. Power is just a representation of what we can accomplish. To feel powerful is to feel strong and capable. Most adults feel more powerful than children because they have more experience and feel more competent in many situations. That's natural. What we can drop is the overtone of power over others. Instead, acting in support of each other helps everyone in the family feel understood, loved, and powerful. They have the power of their family behind them. Even when a child isn't able to contribute concretely towards a sibling's or parent's goal, they can still actively contribute by being emotionally supportive and not standing in the way. Now, what do I mean by that? If a child feels powerless in a family, there's a good chance they will try to exert what little power they feel they have to thwart others in reaching their goals. Taking away someone else's power increases their relative power. So say Jill wants to play her video game. Adam might try to frustrate her in all sorts of ways, playing loudly in the same room, running in front of the TV, tossing toys at her, all in an attempt to get a reaction. The power in the air is almost tangible. These kinds of power struggles can play out over and over, day after day. Remember, though, that when kids are younger, this might happen innocently enough because younger Adam wants to play with Jill and doesn't yet realize that while trying to meet his needs, he's also impeding hers. If you see this happening, you can actively engage Adam, finding something else he can do with you. 
Jill will appreciate your support through giving her space to continue with her activity, and Adam gets and appreciates the attention and engagement he was looking for. And in short conversations and observations with Adam over time, he will begin to understand and incorporate Jill's perspective. During a quiet moment, you can explain Adam's perspective to Jill too, helping her better understand that Adam's motive isn't specifically to frustrate her, but to play with her. It's not that he doesn't like her and is trying to make her mad, but that that he really loves playing with her. Building that kind of supportive relationship with each of your children allows them to feel more comfortable in the family and to trust that their needs and wishes will be considered. Over time, they come to feel powerful and in control of their own life, so they don't need to feel powerful by frustrating others. Another really interesting outcome I've seen is that when children feel fully supported, when they are confident that they have the power of their family behind them, they become much more discriminating in their desires. Life isn't a constant barrage of wanting this and this and this with little rhyme or reason. That doesn't mean that I always understood why my kids wanted to do or to have something, but I did trust that they were motivated by a real need or want. Even if there were times over the years when their motivation may have been more frivolous, they saw me take their wishes seriously and do my best to meet them, and that helped build their trust in me. Think of the reverse situation for a minute. If children are used to only some of their needs and wants being considered and fulfilled by their parents, they take that into consideration moving forward. They are smart. If they're used to, say, having one in five of their requests being taken seriously, they'll be sure to ask for five in hopes of getting at least one. And to get to those five, they are likely asking for some things that would be fun but aren't particularly necessary in their eyes. What is necessary is getting something some attention, some consideration, some feedback that says they are important, some power. In those circumstances, they can come across as needy because they always seem to be asking for something. That worries their parents who may then feel the need to say no more often in an attempt to teach their child that they can't have everything. That parenting advice to ward off entitlement. As a result, the percentage of their child's needs being met falls even further, prompting the child to ask for even more, and so on. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. At that point, recovery of trust in that relationship can take some time, but it's definitely worth the effort. Feeling powerful is empowering. Imagine how supported your children will feel knowing they have the power of their family behind them. Moving away from the conventional attitude of parents versus kids and being careful not to use our power to control our children, but rather to support them as they follow their interests, goes a long way toward building strong and connected relationships. And when each child feels well supported, it removes much of the power-based motivation for discord between family members, cultivating a more joyful family atmosphere. I remember when I first encountered these ideas about not using parental authority to control my children's behavior, I did worry that my children might become spoiled. And at first, it's an understandable concern. And why don't unschooling children become spoiled? Certainly, the actions of unschooling parents may appear to be very similar to those of children in conventional families being spoiled by their parents, but the results play out so differently because the environment in which the actions take place is drastically different. 
The parents' motivations are different. The process surrounding the action is different. And the messages absorbed by the children are different. The negative spoiled behaviors develop when parents do so much for their children because it's faster and easier for them to do it that the children learn to expect these things to be done for them. Yes, unschooling parents do a lot to support their children, but they do so with an eye to helping their children learn how to do things for themselves. This changes the tone and content of all the conversations unschooling parents have with their children and creates a completely different parent-child relationship. Unschooling children are learning very different things from their parents' actions. Let's run through some examples of parenting actions, the conventional and unschooling motivations that are often behind them, and what the children are likely to learn from them. How about when parents give their children things like toys or games or craft supplies outside of birthdays and holidays? Giving children things is often touted as spoiling them. When conventional parents give their children things, it's often as a reward meant to acknowledge an achievement and to motivate them to continue achieving. Over time, though, it can sublimate the intrinsic satisfaction of the accomplishment, and children can come to expect a reward whenever something goes well. When unschooling parents give their children things, it's typically not in reaction to an achievement, but in support of their exploration of an interest. Over time, children learn that their interests are valued. It's about the interest, not the person. How about when parents change their mind about something their children have asked them to do? When conventional parents change their minds, often it's because they get worn down by their children's persistent asking. (laughs) And if that becomes a pattern, over time, children learn to expect to get their way. When unschooling parents change their minds, it's usually because they've considered their children's further explanations. They're having open-minded conversations. In this environment, over time and over many conversations, children absorb the message that their thoughts and feelings are valued. What about when parents don't punish negative behavior? Conventionally, it often means that the parents don't have the time or energy to ensure the child's punishment is upheld for its duration. With this parenting pattern, children learn that there are no real consequences to behavior that negatively affects others. When unschooling parents don't punish negative behavior, it's usually that instead of punishment, they talk with their kids about the behavior, digging into the motivations behind the behavior and chatting about other options for next time. Often this is done later when the child is more receptive to conversation. So often others don't know what's happening. They only see that there was no immediate punishment doled out. With this parenting pattern, children are learning more about themselves and exploring other ways to meet their needs that don't conflict with those around them. What's fascinating to note in all these examples is that the children are learning very different things from actions that look the same from the outside. Actions that can lead to spoiled behavior in more conventional family environments lead somewhere very different in unschooling families. Because the parents' motivation behind these actions are so different, the conversations that ensue between the parent and child are very different, and hence what the child learns from the experience is very different. When we talk about using communication and principles as parenting tools rather than rules and punishment, someone invariably brings up safety. You have a rule about not playing in the street, right? 
You don't want them to learn not to play in the street by getting hit by a car, do you? Nobody wants a child to get hurt, and no child wants to get hurt either. But instead of putting the responsibility for avoiding those risks on my child by invoking a rule, as the parent, I take on that responsibility myself until I'm comfortable that they can safely take it on themselves. See how the rule puts the onus on the other person? For example, when my children were young and wanted to play in the front yard, I knew there was a real risk that they might inadvertently run onto the road, so I stayed with them. I explained that cars go by on the road, so let's play on the grass. If a ball went on the road, I was there to walk them through retrieving it safely. When we crossed the road, we talked about how to do it safely. We had many conversations about how to stay safe, but I was with them and actively showed them how to do it. I didn't need to couch it in terms of a rule. Being there with them and talking about the situation at hand helps them understand the ins and outs of safely navigating the world better than a rule does. And eventually, I saw through their actions that they were capable of keeping themselves safe near a road, in a bathtub, climbing a tree, swimming, and so on. The conventional perspective that parent-child conflict is inevitable and that parents need to make rules and stand their ground creates an adversarial family environment. Power struggles go round and round as parents try to enforce their rules. Children resist being controlled. Teens rebel. If that's not the, the relationship you want to develop with your children, treat them kindly. Instead of putting up a wall between you, Spend more time with them. Get to know them better, to understand them better. As you unwrap the beautiful mystery of each of your children, their challenging behavior will no longer seem inexplicable or manipulative. It will begin to make sense and you'll be able to help them explore other ways to move through those moments. Parents and children needn't struggle against each other. Fair doesn't mean equal. Another ubiquitous parenting idea is that for things to be fair, they must be equal. It's a common way that parents lump their children together, thereby undermining their individuality. The idea behind fairness is an important one. To be fair is to be free from bias, to not show favor for one child over another. It has come to symbolize love, and parents don't want any of their children to feel they are less loved than their siblings. But is making things equal for everyone really the best way to demonstrate fairness? It's certainly easier to measure. Look, there are three presents for each of you. We love you both equally. Over time, the kids hear the message loud and clear and start to view their lives through the same filter. Everything is weighed and measured. The scorekeeping can become exhausting. And in the end, it doesn't really seem like a helpful measure of love, does it? So how else might we look at things? Unschooling families are more apt to observe and evaluate situations from the child's perspective. Sure, both kids got a pair of skates, but did they both want a pair of skates? As parents move to unschooling, they begin to see fairness not as a quantitative measure of what the parents give, but as a qualitative measure of the value each child receives. Equality in what you give each child isn't a helpful measure of fairness or love because what each child needs from you is probably different. One child may need more of your time, wanting a lot of personal interaction. 
Another might have an active outside interest that needs more of the family's money to support it. Still another might need more of your direct participation joining them as they pursue their interests. You may be giving each of your children very different things that take varying amounts of time and effort and money, but when their unique needs are being met, they each feel content, secure, and happy, equally loved. Yet, no matter how hard you try, there may be real reasons why things feel unfair to a child in the moment. Maybe one child gets sick or injured and needs more attention for a while. Maybe there's a busy season with one child's activity. Siblings can understand the need, but still feel things are unfair at the time. Those are really good moments to talk with your child about the situation. Or better yet, just focus on listening. Hear their perspective and acknowledge it. Be compassionate. If it seems appropriate, share your perspective, though not with an eye to convince them to change their feelings. There's a good chance that it is unfair right now. You're learning more about each other, about life. That's why I don't put much stock in the idea that parents shouldn't help their children as much as possible because kids need to learn that life is unfair. There will be enough real moments when life feels unfair. We don't need to manufacture them. It's been my experience that when each child feels like their needs are being met, they feel less competitive with their siblings. There's minimal push and pull and struggle for attention or power. That's because they have come to measure their happiness based on their own needs being met, instead of constantly comparing themselves with those around them to validate their own worth. When parents make this paradigm shift, instead of learning to measure fairness through numbers, Children learn to see and consider the real people behind the numbers, the individuals. They learn that people have different needs and that it's meeting those needs that is important. They come to respect one another as individuals, happily allowing each other to live their own lives because they understand that their siblings' happiness doesn't mean their unhappiness. It's more fodder for the development of empathy, and as they get older and extend this understanding beyond their family, their friends feel better understood and supported as well. And that's a much better skill to bring into adulthood than a penchant for tit-for-tat comparisons. Developing Strong Relationships We've talked about reaching for a yes answer in support of our children's learning. Now let's look at it in the context of our relationships. The beauty of saying yes is that not only does it open up the world for exploration, it also opens up the possibilities for connection. And it's not just in the big yeses. All the little everyday yeses add up too. Yes, let's see what happens if we mix all the paint colors together. Yes, we can read the book again. Yes, I'll play catch with you. Yes, I'll wash your favorite t-shirt. Can you envision their smile in response? Not only are we helping them follow their curiosity, we are cultivating a stronger and more connected relationship and building their trust in us by listening to them and facilitating their needs. Being actively involved in our children's lives is key to being able to understand and support them. We are there to help them navigate the ins and outs of their choices, including the challenges that life throws at them. With experience, they come to know that you will be there to help them and are more open to asking for help when they need it. Real trust is something you earn, not something you can demand. It's about exploring challenges with them, 
helping out as they'd like us to. It means sharing information and feedback with them in ways you've discovered work for them. There will be missteps because that's part of life. The challenge is, if you're afraid of a misstep and the relationship recovery work it entails, that fear can have you sitting back and waiting, afraid to do or say something. And choices made from fear are rarely sound ones. If parents are fearful that sharing their thoughts and insights, even without expectation, will seem controlling, that's something to practice. Because without the feedback, not only will their children lose out on some valuable learning, but the relationship may suffer as well. It's hard to trust that a parent has your back if they don't seem to speak up. So how can parents build meaningful relationships with their children? Strong relationships are built on strong connections. When you have a reasonably strong connection with your child, they feel safe and communication flows. Maybe through conversation, maybe more through body language, definitely through the choices they're making throughout their day. They aren't feeling guarded. And it's in that flow of all kinds of communication that we learn more about our child's unique needs, in that swirl of their thoughts and interests and fears and dreams. The key thing I discovered is that when I'm trying to connect with my child, rather than trying to draw them to me, to ask them to come on a bike ride with me or to make cookies with me or play cards with me, it's much better to go to them and join them in activities they enjoy. And not just family activities that everyone enjoys together, but different activities with each child based on their individual interests. We're back to seeing the world through their eyes. Spend some time quietly observing them so you begin to see what they actually like to do. Then do those things, not passively, but fully engaged with them. Creating a strong base of connection and trust on which to build a relationship is not about putting in time with your child, but about using that time to celebrate what makes them wonderfully themselves. The activities they enjoy, the food they like to eat, the kinds of clothes they prefer to wear, and understanding why. What are the signs they are hungry or tired? What kind of humor do they enjoy? Through your actions, show them that you understand them individually and they feel seen and heard. Once you begin to understand your children as unique and interesting people, you can begin to connect with each of them where they are. That is a comfortable place from which they can welcome you. As you create more and more of these connections, your relationships will get stronger. And as you understand your children better, you will see that their actions and reactions are truly grounded in who they are, not random outbursts designed to frustrate you. From there, your trust in them will grow. And with this developing trust comes true respect, a deep sense of the inherent worth of each of your children, which will most likely be reciprocated in abundance as you use this strong base of understanding and connection to build uniquely wonderful relationships. And what about the teen years? There is so much fear surrounding relationships with teens. Our culture expects, practically insists, that these years will be rocky. Yet time and again, unschoolers have discovered how much they truly enjoy parenting their children during the teen years, continuing to cultivate the strong and connected relationships we have built with them. It can be tempting to let our expectations creep back in as our children get older. 
For me, it helped to remind myself that they are not younger versions of me, but unique beings in their own right. So while the experiences and insights I share may be helpful to them, I don't expect them to take away the same insights from my stories as I do. We are each building our own view of the world. There's not much to rebel against when your parents are helping you achieve your goals rather than trying to coerce you into meeting theirs. From there, we'll have a lasting impact on each other's lives. As teens and young adults, my children have inspired me countless times. I have learned things from them that have made me a better person, and we continue to learn from each other. Fostering Joy Unschooling parents cultivate an environment that supports their children's natural curiosity, and we see learning blossom before our eyes. We focus on our children's curiosity, which manifests as following their interests, passions, and goals, because we know from experience that learning surely follows. What did I discover at the root of our better days? Joy. When we are joyful and relaxed, our minds are curious, open to exploring. When we make choices with an eye to those which bring joy, we move in directions that will connect with us most deeply where we will find engagement and flow. When we first began unschooling, in my mind, joy and fun were the opposite of learning and work. (laughs) I felt guilty that we were having so much fun, but soon I discovered that they are the most amazing dance partners, joy and fun and learning and work. In the dictionary, work and play are opposites, yet the dichotomy between work and play is entirely defined by us. One person's joyful hobby is another person's chore. There are no jobs that everyone universally loves or hates. It continues to fascinate me that we can focus and engage in an activity we consider to be play so much more easily than one we consider to be work. As Thomas M. Sterner reminds us in his book, The Practicing Mind, we make an activity into work or play by our judgments. When we're struggling with an activity and are starting to call it work, it's often because we've lost sight of why we chose to engage in it, job or hobby or life task, in the first place. We've lost sight of our choice in the moment, of our agency. The fastest way out is to find the joy, to make it play again. I cycled through that a number of times while writing this book. When I approached it as play, as something I wanted to do and immersed myself in the joy of the task, the words flowed quickly, like water pouring from a tap. When sitting down to write seemed like work, like something I, quote, had to do, the words flowed more like molasses. It's a mindset. In The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield talks about the depth of engagement and flow in an activity. He writes, It is commonplace among artists and children at play that they're not aware of time or solitude while they're chasing their vision. The hours fly. The sculptress and the tree-climbing tyke both look up blinking when mom calls supper time. Though Pressfield is speaking to artists, I do think anyone can similarly sink into the flow of their activity. Scientists, software developers, entrepreneurs, anyone who breaks through the mindset of work which Pressfield calls resistance, into the enchanting flow of an activity, is joyfully at play. Doesn't that devalue it somehow, though? Because play can't be important. (laughs) But it really is. 
A playful approach is where we are most likely to find engagement and flow. And in the flow is where we are most actively learning and accomplishing things. And when we look up blinking, we feel accomplished and joyful. Encouraging our children to seek out activities that they think they'll find interesting and fun is a great way to help them discover things they'll happily engage in that feel like joyful play. Time will flow, they'll enjoy themselves, and they'll be soaking up the learning like a sponge. In this chapter, we've talked about three conventional parenting paradigms that can undermine our efforts to develop strong, connected, and trusting parent-child relationships. We saw how moving beyond power struggles and considering everyone's needs isn't as difficult as you might imagine once everyone trusts that they won't be taken advantage of. Then we looked at the paradigm of being fair to our children and how looking at fairness through the lens of equality can distort the picture. Because how we help each other, each of our children feel content, secure and happy may look very different. And then we talked about ways to build strong connections with our children. Again, it means shifting our perspective. If in our minds we have beautiful visions of going on a long bike ride with our child, imagining how fun it would be, but our child doesn't actually like riding a bike, that's not going to build a strong connection. Chances are we'll invite them and they'll say no, and now we're both disappointed. Our vision dashed and then left to wonder why on earth we thought they'd want to go for a bike ride. Don't they know me at all? (laughs) Get to know your real child, not the vision of a child you're carrying around in your pocket. And at the root of it all was, and is, the idea of fostering joy in our days. Each day, make the choice that brings more deep-rooted joy. When joy is the goal, everything else seems to flow like magic more often. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey. And be sure to check out the growing podcast archive. The conversations never go out of date. You can find more information about my books, the Living Joyfully Network online community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit online course at my website, livingjoyfully.ca.